Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Sarah, can you step in here a moment? Sure. So, big news. Oh? You're being promoted to regional sales manager. <gasps> That's great to hear, Alan. Thank you. Dr. Corporate. Tens of millions of songs, one for every moment. Amazon Music Unlimited. Start your 30-day free trial today. Automatically renews, cancel anytime. Sarah, you, you can leave now. Okay. Blog Talk Radio. Hey, this is Anthony C. Ferrante, director of Sharknado. This is Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute, and you're listening to Emmy on the Graveyard Shift talk show blog. Hello. Hey, this is Anthony C. Ferrante, director of Hey, this is Anthony C. Ferrante, director of Sharknado. This is Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute, and you're listening to Emmy on the Graveyard Shift talk show blogtalkradio.com Hello, I'm Annette McDougall for the Pop Show Network. Here live from Hollywood Boulevard, minutes before the world is about to end. Fear, rage, panic, paranoia, and $20 baptism buffet on Sunset Boulevard are going to do nothing to change our fate. Yes, we're all going to die. We're all going to die in a
search for The Graveyard Shift, or if you go to our blogtalkradio.com slash The Graveyard Shift, there, there should be a link there to our Facebook group page. Join, become members, join the hundreds, the thousands of members. Ladies and gentlemen, I am so excited, as as I'm sure you, can, you can't tell, right, because I just sound so bland, you know. Ask me why I'm excited. Go ahead. Just ask me. Amy, why are you so excited? <laughs> well, Mickey Mouse, I'll tell you. Ladies and gentlemen, seriously, all kidding aside, I am so excited because I just received word that this show has been chosen as a featured show, a staff pick for blogtalkradio.com's main front page. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> is that awesome or what? Because it is. It's totally awesome. I want to take this opportunity to thank Blog Talk Radio staff for picking my show as a staff pick. Um, I, I mean, it's it's just an absolute honor to be on the same on the same you know channel and same stream as the as the Tavis Smiley Network, Movie Geeks United, you know, great shows like that. And um, I mean, I I just think it's a great honor, and and I don't even I, you know to think that we've gone come this far. You know, and and this is not it's not just about me, ladies and gentlemen, it's about all of us. It's about you guys listening to the show, making it as popular as it has become. And, and you know, we're we're climbing that small mountain, guys, or well, it's not a small, it's a big mountain, but we're, we're what I mean is we're climbing it slowly, but we're going to get to the top. And you know, you might be wondering, well, what is the top? I mean, well, <laughs> the top can be anything, guys. The top can be this to be a nationally syndicated, officially nationally syndicated talk show up there with the likes of, you know, Glenn Beck, Rush Limbaugh, Sean Hannity, uh, you know, uh, Rachel Maddow, you know, uh, oh, gosh, uh, Don Imus, uh, Howard Stern. Oh, yes, ladies and gentlemen, as far as I'm concerned, Mr. Stern thinks he's the king of all media. Excuse me. Say hello to the emperor of all media, Mr. Stern, because I'm going to take that crown, and I'm going to make it mine. I'm going to take it. It's going to be mine, and then all media shall bow down to me, the Shogun Emperor of all talk radio. And you guys out there in Radio Land will be a part of it. All of you will, because you guys are my loyal listeners. You've been listening. Some of you have been listening from the very beginning. You know, like those of you that are cavemen, you guys have been listening since the beginning of time. Oh, man, I thank you guys the most, because, I mean, you guys, while you were uh, making fire, you know, like, ugh. Glenda. Yes, Glenn. I make fire and I do. I board. Okay, Glenn. I turn on stone radio. Okay. Click. Ladies, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening to Talk Show Graveyard Shift. This is Emmy. Oh, that sounds terrible. Turn off. Okay. Click. So, you know, those guys, you guys have been listening since the beginning of time, and I really appreciate that. Oh, by the way, before I get into the whole interview with uh, that we're doing today, and, um, and you know, of course, I'm going to do the news and all that stuff um, to celebrate the fact that our show has gotten to the point that it has. We are going to do a little experiment. I'm sure you've already gotten notice of it. If you're part of our Facebook group or if you're uh, a follower of us on uh, blogtalkradio.com or even on iTunes, you should have already gotten a little notice. It's a, a new episodic segment called Graveyard Shift Presents, or, you know, we shortened it, GS Presents. And what that means is every once in a while we'll do a little, you know, something different than what the normal talk show this is, you know, with me just talking about different topics, politics, and what have you, and interviews. So on this new episodic segment, we have a brand new host. It is not me. His name is The Colonel. And I don't really like the guy that much, but, you know, he paid a lot of money for the episode, and, well, you know, I, I decided to go ahead and put him on. I mean, what was I going to do, turn down money? I mean, it's free money. Hello? Well, it's not free money. I mean, I guess I mean, he's, I'm providing him a service by letting him have his own episode. Now, before you go any further, no, I'm not breaking the rules of blogtalkradio.com by making somebody of having their own episode. Trust me on this. And if I do get an email from it, I'll explain it to them. They they'll understand, and everybody will have a ha-ha moment. But anyway, this is not me hosting. It's a new show called The Murica Show. 
okay? And it's a guy called the Colonel, and he's going to talk about his little vision of America, and I don't even know what he's going to talk about. I just know that he doesn't like me very much, apparently. Uh, he did a little test show, and uh, I don't know. He, he's just really, really mean guy. But anyway, you'll you'll hear all about him. You won't even know uh, much about it until October. It's going to be an experiment, so don't be surprised if something happens and you don't even see it listed anymore. It's just a little idea, a little nugget of an idea throwing out there. So at any rate, before I go into the interview with Mr. Seth Shostak, uh, here are the news. So let me ask you something. How many of you are still U.S. citizens? Oh, really? That many? Well, guess what? It's going down, and they're giving up passports. Americans renouncing U.S. citizenship surged six-fold in the second quarter from a year earlier as the government prepares to introduce tougher asset disclosure rules. Expatriates giving up their nationality at U.S. embassies climbed to 1,131 in the three months through June from 189 in the year earlier period, according to Federal Register figures published today. That brought the first half total to 1,810 compared with 235 for the whole of 2008. U.S., the only nation in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development that taxes citizens wherever they reside, is searching for tax cheats in offshore centers, including Switzerland, and the government tries to curb the budget deficit. Quote, with the looming deadline for FATCA, more and more U.S. citizens are becoming aware that they have U.S. tax reporting obligations, said Matthew Levina, Ledvina, U.S. tax lawyer at Annaford AG in Zurich. Quote, once aware, they decide to renounce their U.S. citizenship. By the way, FATCA is the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act. You can learn more about it if you want. On non-citizenship news, hey, would you guys like to go to Jupiter? Well, Space.com seems to think that a mission to Jupiter should aim to determine the thickness and dynamics of the moon's ice shell and characterize the surface geology of Europa in detail. Now, why would you think this? Why would they think this, rather? Well, because NASA is thinking about some goals for a potential landing on Jupiter's moon Europa. Quote, if one day humans send a robotic lander to the surface of Europa, we need to know what to look for and what tools it should carry. Study lead author Robert Papalardo of NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, said in a statement. Quote, there's still a lot of preparations that is needed before we could land on Europa, but studies like these, will help us focus on the technologies required to get us there and on the data needed to help us scout out possible landing locations, he added. Uh, you know, I've, um, excuse me, Mr. Papalopoulos, Papalardo, i got a, a suggestion for you. Yeah. Why don't we focus on getting to Mars first? Because that would be awesome. Can you guys imagine? This, this is our... Wait, we already had the Eagle, right? So what about the Phoenix? This is Phoenix 1 landing on Mars. I have little green men meeting us on the surface. What do I do? Yeah, you want to get their their uh, that their tranquilizer gun and take care of them. They're green men. Uh, Buzz. All right. Thank you very much. <laughs> so yeah, maybe we should focus on getting on Mars first. Yeah. In other news, remember Finding Nemo? Of course you do. Who doesn't remember Finding Nemo? Jeez. What do you mean there's still people that haven't seen it? Oh my gosh, go on and be people, what's wrong with you? Well, the Walt Disney Company kicked off its three-day fan-centered D23 Expo with a Friday presentation focused on its upcoming cadre of animated films, which includes the Finding Nemo sequel, which is called, wait for it, wait for it, Finding Dory. A prehistoric comedy called The Good Dinosaur. No, that's not a sequel to The Bad Dinosaur or The Mediocre Dinosaur. It's just called The Good Dinosaur. And manga-style Marvel adaptation Big Hero 6. Quote, We've installed seatbelts on all of your seats, Disney Animation Chief John Lasseter told the crowd of 4,000 fans gathered Friday morning across the street from Disneyland. Inside the Anaheim Convention Center. I recommend you fasten them, and if you don't have a seatbelt on your seat, just hold the person next to you. You're going to need it because this is an exciting slate of films and an amazing bunch of filmmakers. Among the many announcements made was that Diane Keaton and Eugene Levy will voice the parents of Forgetful Fish, Dory, and Finding Dory, which is slated to debut in November 2015. Alain DeGeneres and Albert Brooks will reprise their respective roles as Dory and Marlon from the original film, and 
Modern Family fans, guess what? Co-star Ty Burrell will join the cast as a beluga whale named Bailey. The studio also revealed that Up! director Pete Docter's Inside Out, which is also set for a 2015 release, would feature the voices of Amy Poehler, Louis Black, Bill Hader, Mindy Kaling, and Phyllis Smith of The Office as characters representing different emotions inside the brain of a young girl. You know what that reminds me of? You guys remember, those of you who are old enough, y'all remember the 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 pavilion about the human body? What was it called? The, um, oh, fiddlesticks. Well, anyway, you know which one I'm talking about. The one about nature and the, well, not nature, but it was about the, the human body. And um, the Miracle of Life, that's what it is, the Miracle of Life Pavilion. You remember there was this one attraction in there that you go in and it looked like a big human head. And then there were these little cartoon characters that were controlling the, the kid. and or the, I, think, I don't know if it was an adult or a kid, but you got to see what it would look like to look through the eyes of somebody. That's what that kind of reminds me of. I wonder if that's where they got the idea. So, Jay Leno, the... Tonight's show that he hosted will air its last episode on February 6, 2014, and per terms of his show's exit deal with NBC, the cast and crew will be paid until his contract expires in September. Wow, that would be nice. Tonight's Debbie Vickers made the announcement today to the staffers at the show, informed sources report. It's unclear how many crew and staff were at the meeting at the show's Burbank lot. The announcement isn't a total surprise. At NBC's upfront presentation to advertisers in May, the network officially announced that Jay Leno would end his 22-year run on Tonight Show during the week leading up to the 2014 Winter Olympics, which, by the way, start February 7th. NBC also announced Jimmy Fallon would replace him during the second week of the Sochi Games on Monday, February 24th, went forth, excuse me, when ratings are at their highest, followed by the debut of Late Night with Seth Meyers at 12.30 a.m. Fallon's Tonight Show will be broadcast from New York City. Lorne Michaels is executive producing, and Fallon's late-night writer Amy Ozels has been named producer. For those of you who may or may not know, Lorne Michaels is the uh, creator and one of the writers and very, very big, huge producers of Saturday Night Live. Expendables fans, guess what? Bruce Willis is out. Harrison Ford is in. Yes. Quote, yeah, it's great, Harrison Ford told Access Hollywood at the premiere of his new film, Paranoia, when asked about signing on for Expendables 3. Exciting, it's fun. A rep for the actor confirmed Harrison's appearance in the upcoming film on Tuesday after franchise writer and star Sylvester Stallone tweeted the announcement along with news of Bruce Willis' exit from the film. In speaking with reporters, Harrison's rep clarified that the Star Wars star will not necessarily be taking over Bruce's role, but will appear as a new character. Now, if you all remember in Expendables 2, that was starring Stallone, Willis, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Chuck Norris, yay, Jason Statham, Jet Li, although he was only in there for like a little bit, Dolph Lundgren, Jean-Claude Van Damme, Terry Crews, Randy Couture, and Liam Hensworth. Expendables 3 is slated for release on August 15, 2014. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to take a quick break when we get back. We're going to just jump right into the Seth Shostak interview, and there will be no break. So just hang in there, guys. We'll be right back. This is Emmy on the Graveyard Shift, and I'm just punching in. Bye. 
Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Emmy on the Graveyard Shift online radio talk show. www.blogtalkradio.com slash the graveyard shift and on twitter.com slash Emmy Shift Show and on Facebook.com look for our group. Just search for the Graveyard Shift or you can go to our blogtalkradio.com website and search for the Facebook.com link to our group and add yourself as a member. Ladies and gentlemen, this shift uh, show is getting bigger and bigger every single week. Um, and a testament to that are the great celebrities we're interviewing and all the great and awesome content that we've got on here. So right now I'm going to go ahead and interview, or excuse me, air an interview. How am I going to interview an air? I don't know. Maybe one of the royal airs, huh? Well, that'd be cool. I'm going to air an interview that I had with the Mr. Seth Shostak, senior astronomer at the SETI Institute. I got to tell you guys, this was a real treat for me. This guy is is just one of the most smartest men on the planet, and uh, I'm sure you'll see that as I looked. <laughs> I, I, I was, I mean, when I was interviewing this guy, I was basically saying, "Oh, really? I didn't know that because I really didn't." <laughs> I mean, he is really, he really is a really classy guy, and I hope we can get him on again. I'm sure he'll be glad to be on the show again. At any rate, I hope you all enjoy the interview, and. Um, well, there you go. And like I said, there's not going to be any breaks during the interview. It'll just be a straight interview, and then I'll come on and after the interview, and that'll be that. So, ladies and gentlemen, with no further ado, here is my interview with Mr. Seth Shostak. Enjoy. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Emmy from the Graveyard Shift, and I have a gentleman on the line by the name of Seth Shostak, Senior Astronomer of SETI Institute. I am I'm not ashamed to say one bit that I am. I just consider this such a great honor to have this gentleman on the show. Um, how, how are you doing, Seth? Uh, just fine, Emmy, and, and honestly, <laughs> you make me feel guilty. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't don't feel guilty at all, Seth. I I, I wanted to, I'm going to tell you why I think of it as such an honor. Uh, ever since I was a child, um, my father, God rest his soul, um, raised me with uh, a a true just love of space of uh, astronomy of the stars um really anything having to do with that and uh, you know going to 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 the uh, John, the Jan, John F Kennedy Space Center in Florida which I mean I live in Tampa Florida um that was considered a, a very big deal just as big a deal as going to Disney World and um so and and one of the things we always used to talk about was was the SETI Institute, and he he didn't really know that much about it. He knew that you guys, you know, talked. Well, he thought you guys talked to aliens or tried to, but you know, I, I told him one day, one day I'm going to talk to somebody over there, Dad, and I'm going to dedicate it to you. So that's that's what I'm dedicating this uh, this interview to to him. So uh, that that's that's one of the that's one of the reasons why it's such an honor for me to speak to you specifically. Terrific. So. Um, and I thank you for that. And um, so, so Seth, tell me um, – now, I did want to get into a little bit before we, you know, actually start talking about, about all this. I wanted to let people know a little bit about who this gentleman is. If you have been living in a cave and don't know who Mr. Seth Shostak is – and by the way, I am pronouncing your name correctly, right? It is Seth Shostak? You do better than I do, Emmy. Oh, wow. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, well, let's see. So Seth is the senior astronomer at the SETI Institute in Mountain View, California. For much of his career, Seth conducted radio astronomy research on galaxies, including studies conducted using the West Bork Synthesis Radio Telescope. He is chair of the International Academy of Astronautics SETI Permanent Study Group. Seth has written, edited, and contributed to half a dozen books, most recently Confessions of an Alien Hunter, a Scientist's Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and has over 400, wow, published articles on astronomy and other topics. He also hosts the SETI Institute's weekly science radio show, Big Picture Science. So that's who we're talking about today. So Seth, tell me a little bit more about yourself. How did you specifically get involved with SETI and I mean, and, and why? Well, I, I mean, I... You know, as a kid, I was interested in aliens. I happened to have grown up in an era when there were a lot of uh, cheesy sci-fi films down at the local movie theater. And uh, every uh, weekend, my parents would drive me and my buddy uh, down to the theater, and we would spend a couple of hours watching aliens yet again invade the Earth. And, you know, I was interested in aliens, and, and I think that most kids have some interest in aliens because, after all, they're kind of stand-ins for interesting people. 
and they might also be dangerous. So, you know, everybody's interested in something that might be dangerous. It, it pays to be interested in potentially dangerous things. So, you know, that was just a natural interest. I also got interested in uh, astronomy. Uh, by the age of 10 or 11, I'd built a telescope and so forth. That's not a very unusual story. I think uh, you'll, you'll find that a lot of people have done that and continue to do that, actually. But when I when I got to uh, grad school, I you know studied astronomy because I was interested, and uh, radio astronomy, which turns out to use all the same sort of technology as is used for SETI. So later in my career, uh, I got an opportunity to work for the SETI Institute pretty much by happenstance. I, I just happened to move to the right part of the country, uh, and they were hiring people, and they found out I was around, and they just called me up one day and said, you want to work here? So, you know, I mean, just the luck of the draw of that last step. But on the other hand, it was something I was interested in. Well, that's wonderful. That sounds uh, very similar to, to really what I was even discussing with you about. Uh, I also, the same way, my father used to take me to see those cheesy science fiction movies you, you you were just telling about. They used to play them at the local dollar theater. And, I mean, we would see all the all the old Flash Gordon movies and, you know, Creature from the Black Lagoon and, and uh, Earth versus the Flying Saucers, one of my personal favorites. And, of course, The Day the Earth Stood Still, which is one of my all-time favorites. Um, so, I mean, it's wonderful to hear somebody that has a similar kind of background and, and – how now you know when a lot of when uh, when most people hear about SETI, um at least the people that i've spoken with they for some reason they get somewhere in the back of their head they they think of president reagan and i i know president reagan had that famous you know alien message that that he said that you know i wonder if our difference i, I don't know the exact quote but Basically, if if we were still fighting and the aliens came to us, would we unite together? Was he wasn't he involved in its creation or so, or or someone in, in a department that he created, or or well, do you I, know about that? Yeah, no, I don't think so. I don't think Reagan was was involved. It was a NASA project. Okay. Uh, for for quite a while, actually, from more or less the 1970s up until its cancellation by Congress in 1993. Right. Now, most of that time, not much was happening. It was an extremely low-budget sort of back-burner activity at a NASA center, the NASA Ames Research Center, which is about two miles from where I'm sitting, so we're still close to NASA Ames. But in any case, that was started not, not by presidential directive or, or actually from anybody very high up. It was started by a, a gentleman who actually – uh, just passed away. Yes, I saw that. John Billingham, and yes, he was—he was working for NASA. He was interested. He was a medical doctor, a British medical doctor, and uh, there were people in his building who were, you know, talking about the possibility of life in space, even intelligent life in space. And he just found that very interesting. And he thought, you know, you know, looking for that is something NASA ought to do. So he got the ball rolling there. I don't know. I mean, Reagan may have commented on our chances against aliens, or whether, in fact. If we picked up a signal, the whole world would, you know, start singing Kumbaya and Unite. Uh, but he didn't have anything to do with it directly that I'm aware of. Okay. Well, I thank you for clearing that up. I, I, I don't know why that is. For some reason, it, it just – maybe it's because of the time frame. Maybe that's why. I mean, he was president during some of that time frame, and that's why people thought that he had a connection to it. But And I'm glad you mentioned Mr. Billingham. I, I, I uh, Billingham, excuse me, and I, I saw that he passed away. I wanted to offer – my condolences to his family, and, and I mean, I, I think it's such a tremendous loss to to the science community. I mean, I, I'm very familiar with what this man did, and and uh, I don't even, I can't even imagine what it will be like without him there. And I'm just glad that somebody like you is there to carry on his legacy. And and I mean, I think you know that 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 is a tremendous uh, uh, something for the future. You know that that that's pretty heavy. Uh, now, one of the things I wanted to ask you, Seth, is, you know, it's one thing to have uh, an interest in, in contacting and, and seeing if there is truly extraterrestrial life. It's another thing to actually get something like this rolling. It's another thing to find the funding, to find the, 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 the space, especially for all the satellites, for all the dishes. I mean, I can't even imagine how something like this so massive can continuously just be – uh, really just keep going on. Um, so let me ask you this. When you guys are – how exactly do you keep the ball rolling, especially now that it's not funded anymore? How how are you – I mean, if, if it's okay to ask that, how are you guys, you know, uh, staying afloat? 
Yeah, well, it's it's a good question, and it, the answer is with difficulty, because as you pointed out, this yeah, is not this is not a government sponsored project, and it hasn't been since 1993. So, right, that's 20 years ago. Uh, SETI in this country, all SETI, not just the SETI Institute SETI program, but all SETI programs, and there aren't many. There are only a couple, two or three, but they're all funded by private donations. Or if it's something being done at a university, then of course. Uh, you know, university faculty might get some money to do an occasional SETI experiment. But right. for, for us here at the SETI Institute, I mean, we're just a nonprofit here in the Silicon Valley, south of San Francisco. And uh, while our project doesn't cost a whole lot of money, all that money comes from people who just think this is an interesting thing to do and write checks or go to our website and donate. I mean, it's it's very difficult. It's It's very difficult. I can't even imagine, and that's amazing. That that, I mean, I, and it's really, really just humbling to to just hear that, and really wonderful to hear that so many people have that kind of an interest that they they're willing to support it. And and I mean, I know I'm one of them. I, I wanted you to know that I am a SETI at home user and very proud user ever since. Oh my gosh, I'm trying to remember when it actually. Uh, what year did that program begin? In fact, I think it was like in the 90s, wasn't it? Or it, or, it was. It was. I should point out, by the way, in the interest of uh, full and honest disclosure, the SETI at Home program, which has been, as you note, very successful and attracted, I think, on the order of 10 million people, uh, is wow. not. It's, it's not one of our projects, actually. Really? No. That no. That's run by the SETI guys at one of the other uh, SETI projects in this country at the, the University of California at Berkeley. I did yeah. not know. That. Yeah. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, we we are frequently given credit for that, but I I don't want that to happen without. Pointing out right. that it's a, actually it's a Berkeley project. Well, how about well? There you go. It's like it's like a tree with many branches, and each branch can branch its own tree. You know. Yeah. And that that's just amazing. And I've been a I've I have a I, now I would there may be some people out there who don't know what SETI Home is. So can you? I mean, do you know enough about it to give us a, an idea of what it might be? I, I know it's not in your particular department, but I'm, but uh, can you give us kind of a little idea of what it is for some of those people who may not know? Sure. Uh, SETI at Home, is it's a screensaver. It's a bit of software, and you can just download it. I mean, you just search for it on the web, SETI at Home, and uh, you download this free screensaver. And so it senses when you're not typing on your computer, when your computer is just idling there, and it will download a packet of data collected by the University of California Berkeley SETI team. Uh, that's Those are data collected mostly down in uh, Puerto Rico at the big uh, antenna there. Right. And, uh, and, and they analyze it, and they send the results back to Berkeley. So they're taking advantage of unused computer cycles on your home computer or your laptop or whatever. Uh, I, I might mention the SETI Institute has its own interactive uh, SETI program. It's called SETI Live, and, uh, and that, that's something people could look at too. Oh, so, I may. Yeah, I'll look into that. I didn't know about that. Yeah, you have oh. to do work there. You actually look at the you know data and so forth. Yeah. Oh, so it's not – oh, darn. I thought I could do it from home. It's not completely. You can do it from home, but it's not oh. completely automatic. You know, when you go, when you leave your computer to go uh, make yourself a tuna fish sandwich, <laughs> that's your want. Uh, How did you know I like tuna fish? Yeah, there you go. Well, in any case, it, you know, it'll, it'll wait for you to come back. It doesn't do its thing while you're gone. Right. Well, that's good. So, okay. So great. So now, okay. Uh, now, just to clear up a little bit. So you're in the Silicon Valley now. Uh, another thing that people might remember is the movie Contact with Jodie Foster and how, um, you know, that's basically what their connection is with this whole thing. And now you you are you where the Arecibo the Arecibo is that is that in Puerto Rico or is that where you guys are? No, Arecibo is a town to uh, to the west of San Juan in Puerto Rico. Oh, and, never mind. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a long way from here. It's uh, not too far from Florida, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's a long way from California, but it's it's uh, close to the equator, and it turns out that it's in a region of the island which uh, is uh, covered with what's called karst. It's just on limestone formation. But, uh, you know, rainwater has gotten rid of some of the limestone here and there, so there are a lot of bumpy hills and a lot of valleys between the hills. And it turns out in the early 1960s, uh, some people at Cornell University realized it was sort of a a, a natural bowl in the hills there, just uh, south of uh, Arecibo, where you could put a thousand-foot diameter antenna, and you didn't right. have to spend a lot of work with the bulldozers, you know, trying to to uh, bulldoze it out. And so they put it down there. It's also advantageous that Puerto Rico is a lot closer to the equator than, say, Ithaca, New York. So that has advantages for what they were trying to do, which was do radar studies of planets 
in addition to doing radar studies of the ion of the ionosphere. And now, you know, they use it for studying asteroids, but also it's such a huge antenna. It's a great thing for doing astronomy, radio astronomy, studying galaxies, pulsars, but also doing SETI. Well, wow. I did, I, again, I did not know that. I, I do know that they used it on the uh, one of the James Bond films. In fact, I think it was uh, one of the. I think it was Golden Eye or something like that. It was Golden Eye. Yeah. yeah. So, well, um, uh, Jody. No. Yeah, I think it was also Jody Foss. Was it Jody Foss? I, I no, I, I'm not Jody sure. Foss. No, 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 no. Sorry, wrong guy. Uh, no. Jody Foster was down at Arecibo because it was a sequence in contact that was shot there. But then that that accounts for my confusion. No, uh, I guess it was it Pierce Brosnan. Yeah, I believe so. He was was, uh, was Bond at the time they did go line. Anyhow, yeah. whoever it was, yes, that was that was also shot down there. The uh, the people who work at the observatory have lots of very amusing stories <laughs> about their interactions with the casts of these films. Oh, I would love to hear that. Yeah. But um, now, what? So then, what? What are the dishes that you all use to contact uh, or to try to send messages out to space? Well. We have used Arecibo. We used it for, for several years, actually, and it is, being such a huge antenna, it has the great advantage that it's terribly sensitive. Okay, I mean, is it bigger is better in that sense. It has the disadvantage that because it's such a, uh, a useful instrument that, you know, lots and lots of astronomers are using it, so you're competing with them for telescope time, and that meant we were only able to get you know, essentially one week of telescope time a year. Oh wow. Well, that's 2% of all the time on the the instrument and that's a lot actually, but right. you know, that makes the the search very very slow. So, we have since then built our own antenna, the Allen Telescope Array. Right. Uh, so, you know, it it's uh that's kind of the trade-off. You can have this huge antenna, but you don't get it for very often or get it very often or you can, you know, have a smaller one, but one that's yours and that allows you to debug all the equipment and get to it, you know, essentially all day or at least most all days. Well, and also, I don't know. I'm. I don't know if y'all are doing this now. I'm sure somebody's thought of it, but maybe you can rent out your own telescopes too, and and that way that could bring some money in too. I mean, if if you have even the the time to do that, as far as telescope time to do that. Well, there are arrangements. Indeed, we help to pay for the maintenance of the instrument by having it uh, be used by by others. So there is that. Uh, and by the way, we don't broadcast anything. Uh, there are no transmitters on the Allen Telescope Array uh, because, uh-huh. uh, well, you know, I mean, maybe that would be an interesting thing to do. And there are people here who are very interested in the idea of what's called active SETI uh, broadcasting and then, you know, waiting for replies. But, of course, you have to be patient because the nearest star with aliens might be quite quite distant. It might be, you know, at, at, at best it's going to be four or five or ten light years away. So you have to wait double that time. You know, so nine or twenty uh, years to get a response, whatever. Uh, but you know, the nearest aliens might actually be a couple of hundred light years away, in which case you're going to wait a really long time for a response. Yeah. So, in general, SETI has taken the approach of listening because if somebody broadcasts something that's just now reaching you, you might succeed tonight, and there's an advantage in succeeding tonight. Ah, so see, I'm glad you said that. So it's not that y'all are sending messages; it's you're you're listening for them. Just listening. Okay, now that gets into the next kind of thing here. Um, how do we know that the, now we're using what, what kind of te- we're using the, the the dishes, but what kind of listening technology are we using that we're fami- that we're familiar with? Well, I mean, these things are outfitted with radio receivers that, in some sense, are not terribly different from the ones you have uh, at home, right? Right. Uh, except that you know they're they have less noise. They're they're better quality receivers, if you will, and they right. all operate in a different part of the band uh, at at a different frequency than you know commercial radios would, uh, AM or FM. These work at a higher frequency in the microwave region mostly. Uh, that's because the universe is very quiet at microwave frequencies, and the aliens will know that. So if they're really trying to get in touch, they'll they'll broadcast in a part of the uh, electromagnetic spectrum, as it's called where there isn't a whole lot of natural noise. Uh, but the other thing that's different between those kinds of receivers and, and what you have at home is the one you have at home only you know, gets one station at a time. You, you're either tuned into this station or that station, but you're not tuned into you know, five at once. Well, that's, that's great for listening to the radio. But if you're trying to find ET where you don't know where on the dial the signal might be, there's a big advantage in being able to listen to many, many, many channels all at once. Otherwise, you're spending all your time turning the knob and not, you know, not picking up the signal if there is one when it actually comes through. So, 
uh, we have receivers that can monitor millions of channels simultaneously. Okay. And, well, and that sounds a little bit like ham radio. Would would a ham radio operator be able to to, to hear some of those uh, those low frequency uh, messages? Well, well, ham radio. I mean, they're they're ham bands, you know, from low to reasonably high frequencies, right. but they're all much lower than the frequencies uh, generally used for SETI. Even the two meter ham band is ten times longer wavelength than what we uh, normally use for SETI, but yeah, but again, ham radio receivers, I mean, you can turn the knob, but, you know, you're listening at one frequency at a time in general. So uh, even scanners, right? Scanners, they'll, they'll hop from one frequency to the next and then lock in if they pick up a signal, but they're only listening to one at a time. Our receivers actually simultaneously monitor tens of millions of channels. Right. Well, the reason I ask is because, uh, I mean, if you remember the uh, the Judicach Cordelia brothers, the amateur radio operators uh in the uh the sixties they were the ones who made the uh you know who made those audio recordings that well it may or may not have supported the conspiracy theory that the Soviet space program was covering up cosmonaut deaths, and they claimed to have acquired recordings of several secret Soviet space missions uh that ended in tragedy like there there were famous infamous recordings rather where they thought there was a lost cosmonaut in space, maybe even a chimp or a woman that thought something was on fire. Um, and this was around the 60s. That's why I was curious if that particular uh, theory may have been true, uh, that if somebody was like listening in on their you know, little low-band equipment, would they have been able to hear something or, or even just pick up a beep? Or, but but I, I, it sounds like what you're saying is that usually what they're hearing is something that's really more localized than just far out. And you guys have something more... Uh, even though it's low frequency, uh, in particular, it's it's still receiving from far out. Correct? That that that's that's the kind of sense that I'm getting. Well, yeah. I mean, the ham guys could very well have picked up Soviet craft. I mean, you can do that. I mean, guys in orbit, you know, particularly in the early days, they were in what's called low Earth orbit, so they're not that very, you know, not that far away. I mean, oh, okay. passing overhead, they're what, 200, 300 miles above your head. 200, sure. 300 miles isn't very far. You can probably pick up radio stations in your car, AM stations at night that are two or three hundred miles away. More, really. Okay, so, right. you know, that that's all entirely possible. We're, of course, pointing our antennas at stars that are, you know, tens of trillions of miles away. Uh, so that's, that's a different deal. But the, the, the main point is that since we don't know what frequency they're on, we can't sit there the way the ham operators can do and just uh, slowly turn the knob until they pick up the station they're interested I see, in. I see what you're – yeah, okay, I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah, that makes sense. It would take them for oh my gosh, no wonder it's been. <laughs> it would take them a long time to find something at that rate. Yep. Um, so all right, so then you're pointing it at stars. So what do stars sound like then? If they don't, if they're not responding back particularly, what do stars sound like? Yeah, well the star. I, I say that we're pointing at stars, and of course I've got to clarify a little bit. That's just a shorthand that we use here because in ah. what you do is you point the antenna at the star. But what you're really interested in are planets that might be around that star. In some ah. cases, you know whether there are planets around the star. We found, you know, something like 850 or 900 planets around other stars. But often you don't. All you know is that, well, there's a star that's not very far away. Let's point our antennas in its direction. And if there are any planets around that star that have, you know, intelligent beings sending radio waves your way, then you'll pick them up, even though you're, you know, you're centered on the star. But of course, your sensitivity extends way beyond the star there. So, uh, you know, that that's what I mean when we say we're we're listening to in the directions of stars. The stars themselves don't make very much radio noise. Stars make light, obviously. You see them. Right, right. And they make a little bit of radio noise only because they're hot. But it's just a kind of hiss. Sounds like your faucet, and it's all right. over the band. But we're looking for signals that are not all over the band. They're at, you know, one spot on the dial. Right, and how do you know? I mean, and, and you know, like in the movie Contact, they were they were having, you know, they they had to determine that it was indeed an extraterrestrial message and not localized phenomena or even uh, out outlying phenomena around the strata, or excuse me, the ionosphere, or rather. How do you? How would you all? I mean, obviously, you would use your, your equipment and whatnot, but uh, you know, in layman's terms, so to speak, how would you determine the difference between? something localized or even something even from the moon even uh any i don't know just just for the sake of argument let's say an, an astronaut left 
some kind of equipment up there and it just started beeping. How would you uh, uh, discern between that and an actual extraterrestrial message from an, a star that just so happened to be in that direction? Well, that's because the antennas we use are you know, a lot bigger than the thing you might have on your roof. Uh, they right. look like big dishes, right? Uh, mm -hmm. The elements of the Allen Telescope Array are 20 feet in diameter. I mean, Yikes. it's not huge. It's not huge. It's nothing compared to Arecibo, which is a thousand feet in diameter. But because they're they're big, they're sort of like, uh, you know, they're like big lenses, if you will. They they're looking at one spot on the sky, and it's a fairly narrow spot on the sky. It's like looking at the sky through a soda straw. That's the usual analogy. And huh. so, you know. <laughs> If if you're picking up something from the moon, it's because you've got these guys aimed at the moon. <laughs> so, <laughs> I see. So you yeah. Know that it isn't the moon because you're not aimed at the moon. I uh, get you. So that's one thing you use, and and the way you can tell whether it's really ET is if you're picking it up, and it has the characteristics of a signal made by a transmitter, not by a pulsar or a quasar or anything like that. You know, it's it's at one spot on the dial, and it, and it's really there, and there's obviously something about it. That it's very narrow band, as they say. You can say this is made by a transmitter. And if it's moving across the sky, you know, going around the sky roughly once every 24 hours, you know, that's something that's fixed in the sky. That's that's right. not some telecommunications satellite wheeling overhead, or that's not the radar down at the local airport. That's something in the sky. So that's how you would tell. Wow. I, uh, you know, I, 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 and Seth, I know I must sound uh, <laughs> pretty amateur <laughs> to you. But um, I'm trying as much as I can to, you know, connect there and uh, with my limited knowledge of all this. But I'm, I'm learning a lot while I'm while I'm listening, and that's really part of all this. Um, well, I guess my next question would be, what would you say to ET if they? Uh, I know you hear this a lot. Phoned our home. Yeah. If, they, if we got that message, what would we say back to them? Like, what do you all have a like a? Like an, uh, a a folder, you know, do not open unless you know Darth Vader calls or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> well, if we if we do, somebody's got it hidden in their desk because I've never seen anything like that. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, well, there are two things there. First off, if you pick up a signal, you know, should you say anything back? I mean, there's there, there's some people who think, oh, no, 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 don't broadcast back because then they'll know we're here. It's one thing to pick up the signal because, of course, they don't know you picked up the signal. Ah, right. Uh, you know, the Miami Top Forty radio station. You know, you pick that up in your car as you're driving to work, but the DJ there doesn't know that you're listening to him. He doesn't know. Okay. Right. So, you know, there's no danger in listening. But as soon as you broadcast something back, say, hi, look, we're the Earthlings, and we really appreciated you guys getting in touch. And uh, maybe we can interest you in some magazine subscriptions or whatever. <laughs> you know, uh, there, there are people who say, don't do that, because now they know we're here. And who knows, maybe they're friendly, but maybe they're not, and you don't know. And consequently, why endanger the entire Earth by broadcasting our presence? So that's a big debate, and it goes on endlessly. <laughs> I've participated in many aspects of that. But I think it, it really doesn't matter whether people debate it, because you can be sure. If we pick up a signal and, you know, it's, it's going to be big news, and everybody says, man, there's a signal coming from this star that's 250 light years away, and whatever, and here's its position. So, I mean, all that will be public public knowledge. There are going to be people, be people who have backyard satellite dishes and can build a transmitter or buy one, and they're just going to mount that transmitter on their dish, aim it at wherever this signal is coming from, and, and broadcast their personal philosophies. You can wow. be sure of it. I don't think there's yeah. any way you could stop it. I mean, there's no way you to stop it. I'm not even sure that it matters to stop it. And my personal opinion is that there's no need to worry about this because they, they already know we're here if they've got good equipment. So, But... Hey, you know, what would you say? What would I say? I mean, I don't know what other people would say. I, I have two questions I would ask. I, I know what I would send them. I would send them the Google servers or something. I would send them the Internet because there's a lot of information there, and they would, they would learn a lot about us. But if I could ask them questions for which they might get back to us, not just send them stuff, but actually ask them things so it's communication, not just sending info, uh, info. I can't decide whether I would ask them, you know, do you have religion, or whether I would ask them, do you have music. I think one of those two questions. Now that now that is a very interesting two questions there, Seth. Do you have? I you know I like that. I like that because because really so much can be answered by those two questions. And do you have music? Um, you know, music is one of the most amazing inventions or if you even want to call it that i mean i think it's just been there and we just discovered its presence it's kind of like math math was all around us right and we just kind of 
discovered that it was there, kind of like Pythagoras discovered it and uh and and those kind of people and you know um I think music would be something amazing to find out if another civilization had it and perhaps even that would be how we com- communicate once again to do another movie reference forgive me <laughs> but but you know close encounters of the third kind that's how they communicated with those particular aliens um I think I probably would use that <laughs> if it was me I would probably respond with that I would just hope it wouldn't be some kind of like alien insult. Like, what did you say about my mother, dude? Yeah, you know. Well, so yeah, that's possible. I, you know, look, close encounters. You know, dun, 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 dun. you know how much how much information can be in uh, you know a string of ten notes or even a hundred or a thousand notes? Uh, I, I'm not sure that music is the best way to communicate. But on the other hand, I, I just want to know. I mean, you know, we have music, and as you point out, music's really important to us. But if you say from an evolutionary point of view, what's the purpose of music? Why is it that our species developed this ability and interest in music? I mean, how did it right. help our ancestors survive? You know, I don't think the answer is very clear. It may just be an accident. Who knows? Nobody <laughs> knows. And so, you know, if you have an entirely different species, I'd be sort of curious to know whether it happened with them too. Yeah, you never. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I think I think it would be a good question. And you're right. I mean, if that. If it ever became when, hopefully, I'm I'm hoping for when it does become public knowledge that we did receive a message. I agree with you. I think there's no way anyone could really stop it. I mean, yeah, anyone would be able to just go out there and say, "Hey, I'm here, and and I'm and, and I'm the king of Earth," you know. Yep. And 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 you you know, send me your donations and 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 ET money. So, um. That's amazing. Well, Seth, believe it or not, it's getting pretty close to to the end of our of our wonderful time here. But I wanted to, um, I guess, I wanted to end by saying, uh, a, you know, once again, what a tremendous honor it has been to speak with you, sir. And now, where? So, when, if people want to know more about, and I know there's a a ton more that we could talk about, and maybe uh, maybe in future interviews, if you have time, you can come back. And we can really discuss more. Like, I would love to talk to you more about UFOs and and maybe even USOs and things to that nature, and see what your ideas are about that. Uh, but perhaps we can use that for another time. But um, uh, what what can, what can people do if they want to learn more about SETI Institute? Perhaps even donate or visit. Uh, where, where can they go to do that? Well, it's pretty easy. All they have to do is go to their you know, web browser and type in SETI.org, organizations, nonprofit, and uh, they'll find, uh, you know, they'll find a whole bunch of links there. And if, you know, that's not the way they want to do things, of course, they can read plenty about our work in, you know, their endless articles. I mean, just Google SETI. Uh, I have a couple of books. They can read books. I mean, you know, you mentioned at the top of the show, I've I've, uh, written many articles so they can find some of those. And my colleagues have all done the same. So, it's uh, it's not hard to find out lots of information. I'd, I'd say start with the SETI Institute if you want, uh, and, and just you know browse around that website because you will find information there about a lot of things. You also find a link to our radio show, and our radio show covers all science, but it also obviously covers SETI. So they can look through the episodes there and find out uh, you know find interviews with some of the people that um, you know are, are involved with the work. Awesome, and 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 now your so your newest book once again, just the people un, uh, can look for it, uh, was Confessions of an Alien Hunter: A Scientist's Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, and they they can get that at pretty much any bookstore, Amazon.com, things of that nature. Correct? Well, bookstores might or might not have it, but you, you can get it online. Certainly, get it at Amazon or Barnes and Noble or whatever. Uh, yeah, Confessions of an Alien Hunter. That's uh, the most recent one. Yep. Awesome, awesome. Well, once again, Seth, what an honor it's been to speak with you, sir. I hope that we, I hope, will you, do you think you may, may be able to come back with us again sometime in the near future, maybe? You think that might be possible? Oh, I, think it's, well, I think it's possible. It depends on, you know, how careful I am with my driving here. <laughs> oh, well, we, please do be careful. I definitely don't want you to get into an accident. So, listen, my friend, thank you so much again. And it was, it was great speaking with you. And, uh, you be careful out there and just be thinking of us little guys here at the graveyard shift and me and, and, uh, and your travels. And, and, uh, we thank you so much, sir. Okay. I mean, it's been a real pleasure. And thanks very much for getting in touch. Awesome. Thank you, sir. You have a wonderful night. Ladies and gentlemen, that was our interview with Seth Shostak, senior astronomer of SETI. 
and um, I hope you enjoyed listening to it. I know I enjoyed interviewing him. Stay tuned, guys. Um, we'll be updating with our newest episode of The Graveyard Shift soon. Um, we're still waiting on several you know, confirmations of um, interviews to come. I can't say who we will be interviewing next. Actually, yes, I can say that. Uh, we will be having on our show, hopefully next weekend, uh, the producer for the uh, documentary JFK, The Smoking Gun, which I believe that documentary is coming out in November. The producer's name is Jesse Prupas. I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly. And we'll be interviewing um, the producer next week, and then I'll be airing that interview next weekend. So please do tune in next weekend for uh, same time, Friday night, 8.30 p.m., and I will be interviewing uh, Jesse Prupas, producer of JFK, The Smoking Gun documentary. And then, you know... Go to our website, blogtalkradio.com slash the graveyard shift. Join our Twitter feed at twitter.com slash Emmy Shift Show. And also, if you click on the Facebook group page on our Blog Talk Radio website, you can become a member of that. I welcome everybody and anybody who's you know willing to have a peaceful, rational, and also fun uh, discussion on all things and everything that we talk about on the show. And um, I want to give a little shout-out to my buddy out there in uh, L.A., California, Mr. Anthony C. Ferrante. Congratulations on the red carpet premiere of Sharknado, my friend. And also congratulations on the announcement of Sharknado, the second one, the sequel, which he uh, actually revealed in our last uh, interview, if you remember. So be on the lookout for that. Hopefully we'll have him on the show next time when he – I mean, he's going to have a very busy schedule on his hands because, as everyone knows – that movie has just absolutely skyrocketed. Now, remember, guys, also, Eric Meyer's Dopeless Romantic, the uh, stand-up comedy film that our very good friend of the show, Chris Adcock, produced and directed. It will be – it's already uh, available for pre-order on Amazon.com Instant Video, and it will be released on August 27, 2013. Um, it doesn't look like – we, I, I believe that's also the release date for the Netflix.com, but I'm not. Uh, apparently, Chris doesn't seem to think the uh, on his re- most recent uh, updates, it didn't sound like uh, Netflix may or may not release it yet on that day. Maybe a little, maybe one week or later or so. But hey, you know what? Just keep checking on there. Just go to Netflix.com, go to the genres, uh, hover over it, and where it says stand up, click on that, and it should be one of the top ones on that day. Once again, please do support independent film and independent filmmakers. They're the ones that are going to keep our future going, and and um, hopefully, you know, we'll we'll hear more about uh, Eric Myers when he when he has the time to come on our show because I know he's busy too. So, ladies and gentlemen, if you have any ideas for any future guests, anyone you want to hear me interview, I'm always open uh, for suggestions. You know, shoot me an email or just you know send me a little tweet or a message on uh, any of the places I just mentioned, and, you know, I'll, I'll consider it. I won't say for sure that I'll definitely interview them, but I'll de- you know how I am, guys. I'll consider it. So um, there you go. Next weekend, Jesse Prupas, producer of JFK The Smoking Gun. I want to thank everyone for listening to the show this weekend, and I will uh, see you guys again next weekend. Thank you, guys. This is Emmy. This has been The Graveyard Shift Show. And this is Emmy punching out. Peace. Give me a second, I I need to get my story straight. My friends are in the bathroom getting higher than the Empire State. My lover, she's waiting for me just across the bar. My seat's been taken by some sunglasses, asking about a scar and... I know I gave it to you months ago I know you're trying to forget But between the drinks and subtle things The holes in my apologies, you know I'm trying hard to take it back So if by the time the bar closes And you feel like falling down I'll carry you home Tonight Sarah, can you step in here a moment? Sure. So, big news? Oh? You're being promoted to regional sales manager. <gasps> That's great to hear, Alan. Thank you. Dr. Corbett, approved member.
Tens of millions of songs, one for every moment. Amazon Music Unlimited. Start your 30-day free trial today. Automatically renews, cancel anytime. Sarah, you, you can leave now. Okay. Okay, pumpkin. Who am I? Say, mama. Mama. <sighs> Alexa, play the Tang Tangs. Tens of millions of songs, one for every moment. Amazon Music Unlimited. Start your 30-day free trial today. Automatically renews, cancel anytime. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.